0: right states what's called
1: so hello everybody and welcome to Sonic Talk number, can you believe it, 180, I find it hard to believe. We're 20 off the double century, which is uh, very impressive. And it's only fitting that I've got two of my most regular guests with me, as well as uh, one extra, who I will introduce in a moment. Uh, but first, I just want to say uh, hello to everybody in the chat room. I uh, really appreciate you coming along and watching us. Um, we're, we're streaming live. Hello, I'm waving to uh, various cameras and there's another we're waving another camera. Um, hopefully this is recording this week, because last week it didn't really work because... I think the world and their wives and their children were all watching uh, World Cup football matches. And as there's no football today, I think the internet can handle our little tiny stream. So um, if you want to come along and watch in the future... um sonicstate.com forward slash live and there should be a link to the Ustream page with the pre-recorded shows and you can see it all and uh, that's how it works, but anyway, welcome to my regular guests, um, really and I'd like to say, take this point point to say thank you so much for your continued involvement because it really, without you, uh, it would be me waffling on for hours and we wouldn't have any audience at all, so uh, I'll say thank you very much to Dave Spears from g4software.com hello, hello Ooh, that sounded like you just zipped your flies up then before you before you answered that. There was a what was that mark? It wasn't it wasn't here, <laughs> It just was Holy a bit disconcerting. How are you, Dave? You well? Uh yeah, I'm fine. Thank How's you. your office? It must be quite hot because this one's hot.
2: Uh it's very hot, yeah.
1: Yeah, I'm boggling here. I have, go, I have to turn the air con aircon on every thirty seconds, but I'll just switch it on. You can hear what it sounds like. If I can get away with keeping it on, here it goes. There it is. Can you hear that? Oh, maybe That's not. not bad. That's not bad. Maybe I should keep it on. It's right next to me as well. Maybe I'll keep that on. Anyway, i Dave Spears, G4 Software. Thank you very much for joining us. Uh, and I believe you've got somebody with you who we've spoken to before. Is that Andy Shillitoe? Come in, please.
3: It is. Hello. How are you? I'm good, yeah. A bit, bit worn out after Glastonbury, but uh, good. I should explain. Andy
1: Shillitoe is, I guess, were you doing front of house sound at Glastonbury?
3: I was doing front of house sound at Glastonbury, but uh, more shows than one should do in a day.
1: Oh really? So you're doing a number of people? Were you working for the PA company or for the various bands there? How did that work?
3: Uh, I was working for one band, uh, which is named Lissy. Ah, okay. Uh, it, it just happens to be, it was album release week and she's quite popular and quite underdoggy, so uh, there was lots of stuff to do, basically.
1: All ah, right, so um, So, yeah, front of house, by front of house, I mean, you know, uh, live sound at Glastonbury. So if any of you watched any of the BBC coverage, either because you're in this country or you figured out how to do it from outside the UK, um, you may well have heard one of your mixes. Is that right, Andy, or do they mix that separately? That, uh,
3: no, that would be correct. The one that we did as a session for the BBC after uh, Muse on Saturday at midnight was live, which I mixed with the BBC mix engineer. Nice. Excellent. So were you, do, were you in the OB truck for that? I was in the OB truck for that, yeah. Uh, oh. And I suppose there's some relevant stuff uh, that I could maybe use later on in the um, three tips to improve your mixing.
1: Yeah, particularly um, live. That would probably be, go down very well.
3: Yeah. So okay. yeah, there you go. That's what I've been doing, but I'm okay now.
1: Fanta- <laughs> fantastic. So how was that? I heard on um, Radio 1, I was listening on Saturday or something, that uh, the, the showers had run out of water halfway through Friday or Saturday.
3: I wouldn't know about that due to being (laughs) in in a nice hotel some distance from the site. Excellent.
1: A hotel with a helipad?
3: uh, Unfortunately not. Next year, apparently. Really? My my helipad will be ready next year. Your helipad will
1: be ready. You'll be able to fly in and out yourself.
3: Michael said so, but you know he says that every year.
1: <laughs> well, Andy, pleasure to have you aboard. Thank you very much. And um, where, where, where should we point people at to uh, discover the goodness of your, uh, of your, of yourself? Have you got a, a URL? Or I think you pointed people at uh, Lissa's site, didn't you before?
3: I uh, possibly did. Yeah, I mean, it won't say anything about me on there, and she's far more attractive. So I'll go there. It's uh, Lissa. <laughs> And, and much more talented. Uh, yeah, Lissy, L-I-S-S-I-E. There's plenty of stuff on there. And if you can find the BBC session that they did at Glastonbury, uh, which I think is on a link to her site, then that would be me mixing it, but it won't say so.
1: Oh, excellent. Okay. Uh,
3: but I don't have a site or anything, now.
1: Well, you have to fix that. You have to get yourself on um, oh, no. Fastbook or something.
3: First, yeah, I am. I just don't understand it,
1: so. <laughs> like you, and probably seventy-five percent of the people who are also attached to it. Anyway, thanks for joining us, and also Mark Tinley, uh, come in, please, Mark. I know you're um, in the middle of um, actually trying to look after what sounded like a houseful of children at the same time. So, very much appreciate you making yourself available.
0: Because it's all a bit hectic, really. <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, good for you, multitasking to the end. Like
0: being, yeah, I've got papers everywhere and all sorts of things,
1: so
0: all right. you're saying my URL, I'll be quiet.
1: likebeing.com is where you need to go for all things Mark, uh, one of the many roads to Mark's uh, many web presences. Indeed. Mark Tinley calls sound artist, I, I think I put sound artist and creative thinker in the show notes, does that sound about right?
0: Yeah, that sounds fantastic. It does yeah, sound pretty good, doesn't it? Do you think it's accurate, be, though? Just- <laughs> <laughs> well, I was trying to pretend not to be a creative thinker, and I was trying to pretend to be somebody that knew what they were doing recently. But I think creative thinking is much more fun. So I've gone back to being that and being a bit more honest about the fact that I don't think in the same way as everyone else. In fact, so use it I think, your like a, I think like a cross between a five-year-old boy and a brain scientist. But there you go.
1: Oh yeah, okay. It's that sort of sometimes the simplest the simplest approach, you know. Well, why can't you do it like that? It's the sort of thing that um, children th- often say, yeah. isn't it? Is this, this And I remember seeing a speech by I forget Ken Robinson Ken Robinson. I think it was at Limbs and about about how um, the uh, it's the type particular kind yeah, of think- yeah,
0: sent me that speech
1: particular kind of thinking. About- Um, is drained from us as we grow older it's trained out of us and it's something that's actually much sought after in the world of business these days so it seems to be a bit of a strange way of educating ourselves by actually educating all the creative thinking out of ourselves anyway that's quite possibly another topic perhaps there's something that you've written on the subject that can be found at one of your many domains would that be fair to Uh, say probably Anyway, Mark, thanks for joining us. Um, I think that's it for the show. I was hoping that PJ Tracy was going to be here. I did hear from him; he'd been away. He was up country, um, but uh, and he said he was going to perhaps pop over. Um, but I think obviously he's not able to make it today, which is a shame. But uh, hopefully we'll get him soon. And um, uh, and and he's busy and doing doing lots of good things. So uh, let me just—I've got to tweak some levels here because it's all not quite right. So. Um, Let's start off with our first topic, and this one was a cracker, because I don't know if you got to see this, but I just thought this was hilarious. Let me play the intro. Those are the factory sounds they
0: call the standard set. (laughs) There's a groove, I guess, some kind of groove. Ah! The power set. (laughs) They call it the power
4: set. Funk set for some reason. Get funky now. Oh.
0: Standard set. Roger Lenz factory drums. Here's the standard set. Banging Roger. on this and that and and. Uh.
1: That was uh, a rather amazing way. Uh, There's a video that was linked to uh, an MPC uh, 3000. Uh, eBay auction, and it was by a chap called uh, Steve Ripley, who used to be in a band called The Tractors. And there's a funny story actually attached to this, um, which I'll tell you perhaps later. But uh, what a great way to sell an item of uh, a piece of kit, though, don't you think? I think it should almost be mandatory. If you're going to sell a synth or any kind of music technology, you should have some kind of narrative going on there. What do you think? Dave, next time you put something on the eBay, what about it?
2: It was a time for heroes.
1: <laughs> it's definitely got that vibe, hasn't it? Yeah, he's got a great voice, isn't he? I mean, he, he sounded like he was hamming it up a bit, but uh, it was br- a brilliant, um, a brilliant way to sell equipment, at the very least. I don't know, Mark. I could see. I, I think you should do it next time you check something on eBay. just have just some kind of uh, nonchalant voiceover like that, I'm sure you could manage it.
0: Uh, probably. <laughs> I'm following this with huge amounts of vagety, to be at the
1: moment <laughs> is your son balancing across the uh the architrave or something at the moment or about to wander out into the out of the garden gate or something
0: no, I found episode two of Spider-Man, and he's drinking something now, so that it should all get a bit more balanced from now on. But, yeah.
1: <laughs> okay. Well, let me just tell you about this. That that was a voiceover. That was Steve Ripley, who was apparently from the tractors. But he has an interesting story attached to this particular MPC 3000. Uh, it is, and this is, goes from the notes in the actual eBay auction. It says, Once upon a time, we worked for Leon Russell in a faraway magic place called Leon Land. Um, basically... Um, not everybody knows him. Leon's personal engineer right before him was a young guitar player from California named Roger Lynn. Roger liked Leon's idea of using a programmable drum machine so much, he left Leon to design his first product called the Lindrum. Drum. Uh, wow. Steve took, uh, took Roger's place as Leon's engineer when he left, and the first recordings were made with the machine. And we, uh, as a band, the Tractors, bought several MPC um, 3000s. Uh, arguably the best of the bunch. And that was something that was quite interesting actually because uh, I was looking into it and the MPC 3000 seems to be the one that everybody says was really nailed because it had the timing, the legendary timing of the uh, uh, MPC 60, but with the 16 bit audio quality of uh, Akai's sort of current and latest sampling engine. Uh, and, and incidentally, this eBay orchard went, went for 730 bucks. And I don't know if that's a lot or not. I didn't actually get a chance to check that out. Does it seem like a lot? It doesn't seem to, to when it's got so much history attached to it.
0: No, it doesn't seem a lot at all,
1: does it? No. I never really got into NPCs. Um, I, I feel like I missed I missed out, because everybody... I went down the, the Atari path, and perhaps if I'd gone the other direction, things would be different.
0: I mean, me too. I used to be in a band, and once upon a time... <laughs> the guy... The guy that did the backing tracks in the band, I used to do all the stuff on the Atari, and he used to do basically put things together in the MPC-60 and bring them to me. And I actually can't help thinking now, in retrospect, that they probably sounded better coming out the MPC-60 before I resampled everything and put it all back together in the Atari. But there right. you go.
1: Well, it's, it's interesting, isn't it? Because I, um, I remember quite recently, it was Maloco used uh, used MPCs a lot as well. Um, I remember seeing them live, I mean, this was going back some time, it's probably seven or eight years, about the time of do, you like, of do You Like My Tight Sweater, which I think was a classic record, and it had a really good feel to it as well. Um, and, and they use I mean, Dave, you kind of worked with a, a number of people, sort of studio and live-wise, do you find that they're, they're still, do they still have their place? Because, I mean, I know the problem is, obviously now, I've just did a whole load of programming for Golf Rap, who were just were still going to take the Akai's S5000 out on the road, because the latency and the, um, the, the reliability was still there. But, you know, that's obviously quite terrifying with something that might be, you know, if it falls apart, where are you going to get new bits for? Yeah, yeah,
2: yeah. Uh, yeah, no, a few people. Uh, most of the guys I hung around with were using the SP-1200. I think that was the kind of super hip thing. But, I mean, they are really good fun. The NPCs are all really good fun. Anything that you prod with your big fat fingers, those pads, always good for a laugh.
1: Yeah, I've never tried it. I, I, I mean, I know that, you know, we've had a massive... There's been an evolution, hasn't there, from the sort of uh, these the, was it six by six matrix uh, controllers with all the the Akai stuff and the the M Audio trigger finger, all of that thing. That's now gone to the sort of eight by eight. So now we're going into the, uh, the a different world, which is more of a matrix. It's sort of evolved from that into things for controlling Ableton Live, which I suppose is a similar kind of vibe, isn't it? Really, when you think about it, because you're triggering. I suppose you're triggering clips rather than anything else. It's quite an interesting. Yeah,
2: yeah. a yeah. sort of logical progression, really, isn't it?
1: Yeah, The Matrix. The Matrix is with us fully. I don't know. Andy, does, uh, does any of your live acts um, ever have your path crossed with the MPC range
3: live? No, honestly, I can say it never has. Um, it seems to be those kind of things. This, I, I guess it's the kind of thing that I do, though. Um, I don't do a lot of bands that have that kind of technology involved or I don't seem to um I seem to do more guitar oriented stuff but there is certainly a lot of old stuff coming out on the road because I hear backline technicians complaining about it at festivals <laughs> a lot so there's obviously um, there's obviously a lot more of it about in the live world than there used to be
1: yeah I I think um I wonder if it's down to the fact that we're still not in this kind of place where we would rely on a computer 100% live, people, because it seemed to me that we sort of did Ableton did a lot to to kind of instill confidence back into <clears throat> people, kind of using machines live rather than multi-track, so that they just have a bit more flexibility. But is it perhaps going back the other way again? I wonder. Interesting.
3: I think I think it's um <clears throat> well, my opinion of it would be that it was it was for the simple reason that um, older machines have more character and. People can use them a lot more easily, I guess. Oh, uh, maybe that's wrong. I mean, maybe well, the, no, no. I,
1: I think the I new think...
3: generation can use computers easily. But you know, when when you're talking about things like New Order and that ilk of people me- messing, literally messing with machines that they didn't understand that's where that stuff came from you know and hip hop came from sampling loops of minor bass lines over major keys which, which which was essentially wrong and illegal <laughs> in um, every sense and uh, yeah well you know not uh, by my opinion but i do remember a, a, a situation in the studio being called in and asked to judge the fact of whether this bass line was right or wrong and and the producer stroke engineering question was trying to justify it and i was like well it's not right or wrong is it it's just what they've done the fact that they don't know that that bass line doesn't fit with that top chord is irrelevant to them. So why should it be relevant? Why should it be relevant to us? But I think um, that's why people are using it. You know, the um, Larue and people like that. There's a lot of old gear on stage producing old sounds, and they sound good. You know, they sound oh,
1: were you were you present at the Larue gig um, last I heard a little bit of it, and it sounded like she was going down really, really well. I mean, not. Mo- um, probably mostly because everybody knew the songs and was singing along and having... Did you see what she was using live? Oh,
3: I didn't see what she was le- using live, no. I was. Uh, we were just so busy, I didn't get to see much of anything. But I did see a lot of it on TV. I, do... I watched um, right. a lot of it on TV. And um, there's obviously quite a lot of old technology being used again.
1: It's funny, I, I did actually um, do... I used to work at Glastonbury, and I was working on a, a sort of smaller stage, and we had a band called Eat Static come and play one night. And I, I think them. they were, uh, they were sort of the, the keyboardy side of Osric Tentacles, I believe. And I remember they had this enormous live rig and it was ridiculous. They had 808s, 909s, loads and loads of all this stuff kind of hooked together and it was old stuff, you know. And all I remember was they went on probably an hour and a half late because it took them all that long to get the stuff working so that they could do the gig. And obviously that's <coughs> not really where you want to be, is it? <laughs> With the old technology. No, and that's I've... the downside of it.
3: I went to see the Beta Band at Reading Festival the first time they played on a, one of the smaller stages early in the afternoon, and they didn't—they played one song because it took them that long to get these Akai drum machines working, and Oof. you know leads and and stuff and all the rest of it, and, and they just didn't play. So I just kind of went, "No, they'll go nowhere that lot." <laughs> <laughs> and of course, the next thing is they're massive, but um, it's that kind of thing, you know—it's that home-built thing, that homemadeness about it. Comes from. Um, it's more difficult to do that with computers, I think. And to yeah. an extent, as as I feel about PA systems, it's all getting a bit too good now. I think.
1: Oh, really? Uh, do you, as, you...
3: So a lot of stuff sounds the same.
1: Well, that, that is interesting because I mean, I mean, I imagine at most of these festivals that they're, they're using digital consoles, right? Am I am I right with that? Or are they yeah, using...
3: digital consoles through digital processing through light array systems.
1: I, don't, I never like liner rays I like the pointy, hard, hurty mid-range and tops that you know let, let you know when you're getting it wrong.
3: <laughs> yeah, yeah, you know when you're getting it wrong. Somebody had put one of the things we did was um, <clears throat> the orange chill and charge tent, which is normally just a real shambles, like doing a badly run wine bar. But this time they had a mini pyramid stage, and the guy had deliberately scoured the country for a Martin shave system which was in pretty good nick. And it, and it was, a, you know, we're talking about a 20-year-old system that was probably state-of-the-art 20 years ago. Yeah. Uh, but it looks like something out of Predator. And, you know, I think it sounded better because it looked like that. It looks like <laughs> it weird, means business. Way, yeah. You know. yeah, you know. And you're right, it did. You knew it, immediately you did something wrong with it, you knew. Whereas a lot of the newer stuff's very forgiving.
1: It's very subtle as well. And it's the, the thing is, it comes from everywhere. That's what I don't like. It's not directional enough for me.
3: No, I'd agree all a bit
1: that. dispersed and i find that i mean not that i've mixed like i mean you missed the show uh, perhaps last week or the week before when i actually found myself i was asked to mix a band you know drunk uh, late evening said oh will you mix us and then i went to the tower to what it wasn't when well, i say tower but the the pa station and it was a it was a very unfamiliar digital console that i was presented
3: with <laughs> and i was kind of like yeah
1: well, what do i do now
3: yeah have another drink. And yeah. <laughs> what you do in that situation is you have another drink, you offer to buy the house engineer one, and then you ask him to do it because you openly admit you don't know what you're doing. I did know, what I, I didn't know what I was doing. know. the only way to avoid disaster. I, I saw did. somebody do the opposite recently, and it's not pretty.
1: I did actually manage to do almost that. I didn't buy him a drink, but uh, I did ask him to help me, and I got all the credit because everybody said as soon as I went up, it sounded much better, even though all, I did, go, all I did
3: was <laughs> that's exactly, that's go, what does this do? do? <laughs> yeah. Well, that's. I mean, it sounds we are joking about it, but it's probably if people ask me for advice, if younger people ask me for advice that do what I do, that is the my best piece of advice, which was given to me by Pete Scan was when you if you get into a situation where your band outgrows your experience, you uh, you which happens a lot. I mean, that, especially these days, you go into those situations. The first thing you do is you you tell the guy that you you're not quite sure. of, yeah. of certain things and then he'll help you if you go exactly. in there and go yes it's fine I know what I'm doing get out of my way this is my band he'll go right off you go then
1: <laughs> yeah well no I used to do that as well when I was um, the limited touring I was doing I'd say look I don't know the place your house you, you're going to know how to get the balance right I know the songs so if you don't mind yeah. perhaps we could do it that way
3: yeah definitely the best and then of you, Certainly and then you get the best people.
1: of both worlds because you can still blame them if, uh, if it didn't sound very good
3: absolutely At, but
1: yet <laughs> take all the credit if it sounds great
3: yeah, the band can't see your fingers from the stages, as no. long as you stand behind the desk.
1: <laughs> yeah, that there is the key to that.
0: Also, the band of, the band have absolutely no idea what it sounds like, really, have they? Generally no, not. If their yeah. mate. if their mates say to them, yeah, it sounded great. If their mates are on the right combination of drugs, then you're kind of okay anyway, aren't you?
1: you so are the, and the answer is so buy, better. buy the, buy everybody else who came along a drink so that they find
3: out who the friends are, get them off their faces, and <laughs> you know be nice to the engineer. It's game's over, really.
0: <laughs>
3: it sounds like we should write a book on this.
1: Yeah, so. I think there is. I think there's there's something there's something brewing here.
3: How <laughs> to win bands and influence managements. <laughs> <Yeah. Okay. laughs> Excellent.
1: Anyway, um, that while uh, while we were talking about um things com- becoming extinct, I, I I was just um out of interest was m- um doing the review of the Dave Smith Mofo keyboard this week, uh, which I know I did an unboxing. It's up now and all done and everything. And it struck me, uh, although while it's you know great synth and what have you, it's still a monosynth. And it seems to me that you know all the work and effort that would go into something like this. You know, if you're going to make a hardware monosynth, it has to be something pretty special these days to exist. Because the thing I have been found, finding, and, and this I'm not, I'm not just using this as an excuse to say how great your synth is, Dave. Because there's another synth I wanted to talk about as well. But I've, I've also just had in for review the uh, Zills Lab. I think that's how you pronounce it, PolyKB, which is the thing that's modeled on the RSF PolyCobble. PolyCobble. Yep. Yep. PolyCobble sounds like something else, doesn't it? PolyCobble. And that sounds absolutely brilliant. I have to say, it's really musical. And uh, I was thinking, "Ooh, I better put that up against um, the beater I've got, the Imposter." And uh, the Imposter sounded even better, but that's not what I was reviewing. But I was thinking, "Wow, actually, the and both of them, to my ears, sounded more compelling anyway than than the Mofo." And mm-hmm. I was thinking, you know, what we're getting to the point now where you know th- this is so good. The, the 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 emulation of the waves and the attention to detail of the sort of nuts and bolts of this stuff rather than just bolting a load of effects on top of it are getting so good that you know we're 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 in danger of um, perhaps losing losing the need for some of this stuff or, or am i talking out of my uh, my posterior dave discuss uh not really i
2: mean i do i like mono synths i really do there's something about the way that you play a mono synth i.e they're just being that one note and things like you know um legato modes and you know single trigger modes and stuff like that that just make it i don't know just kind of nice and accessible and friendly and it, it's a different way of playing and it and, and in some ways i can vibe out a lot more on a mono synth than i can on a poly synth. I I think you've got to be uh, particularly good to be a great player on a polysynth. Whereas on a monosynth, you can be raggedy and stuff like that, and it still kind of works. You can use no no
1: priority to your advantage, can't you? Yeah.
2: Yeah. yeah. And I mean, things, you know, obviously the Oddity is still a monosynth. I mean, it is duophonic, but it's, you know, effectively a monosynth. And I mean, that still does really well. It's just got a certain sound and a bite to it. And then there are other things like when you start introducing ring modulation with the monosynths, you get those kind of really gnarly, discordant overtones that you don't really get with a polysynth. So, yeah, I love polysynths, but I also love my monosynths.
1: Oh, that's a, very, uh, that's a very diplomatic and, and sort of and lovely answer there, Dave. Mark?
0: Everything he said.
1: <laughs> <laughs> okay, then that's this topic over <laughs> and done with. I know. I, I ju- it just. I mean- it, it kind of gave me an inkling of perhaps where the future's going, because, I mean, you know, you're very fortunate as well, Dave, in the fact that you've got those controllers for the for the soft synth, you know, for, for the Imp2. And the fact that you've got that level of control, which is essentially what the advantage is of having a discrete analog synthesizer, whether it be uh, mono or poly, is once you take that um, differentiation away where's the you know there, there's the, the the overall kind of package is, is is more difficult to to be sure of either in either direction would you say mark
0: um i th- yeah i'm going to go somewhere completely different okay. i'm not uh, going go to it. I mean i was thinking more about arpeggios and the way that arpeggios work on monosynths is completely and entirely different to the way they work on polysense and probably because the If you run arpeggios on a polysynth, then the notes die away underneath the other notes, and that you have a completely different kind of sound to when the notes get cut off by the next set of notes yeah that's true so I think and I know you can put polysynths into mono mode or some of them, but it's not really the same, is it there's something about there's something about a polysynth and a, something about a monosynth that it's it's much more of a sort of a player's instrument really i suppose isn't it i mean you, there's
1: a yeah i think i yes i, I suppose th- that's a good point because a poly i, I suppose a polysynthesizer is down to in most cases technique i mean you can't use note stealing as easily uh, to your advantage in terms of technique on a polysynth even if it's like a four voice as you can on a mono when you, if you've got the, the you can switch between low and high pri- note priority there's all sorts of things you can do in fact there's a really really good mofo keyboard demo on YouTube um, uh, I forget what it's called but I, when I was researching the uh, for the review I, I came across it and this guy was just playing a really really brilliant bass line and using that prior- priority stuff to fantastic effect and he was obviously a player you could tell and that, that's true you can't get that with with polysynth
0: no Hmm. i mean one of the things that i used to like doing on things like the sh101 is you set up an arpeggio or you set up a sequence and while it's playing you just stick your finger on different keys and then that really creates some interesting stuff because it starts it'll play the note when it's not playing the other notes and it kind of bounces back and forth between um between the note you're holding down and what it's trying to play. Yeah. So if you have it playing a bass line and you hold down a high note, it starts creating these kind of ghost top lines to things as well. And you get this really interesting effect where it's still playing the bass line. And then you've got this kind of whatever note coming in and cutting in. Um, I think so, uh, that's
1: I think that's exactly it. Actually, Mark, that's what this guy was doing to great effect, and it just sounded. Was we'll he oh, okay? Yeah, and particularly if there's a little bit of glide or portamento in there, it really kind of just makes it come to life.
2: Yeah, can you imagine a polyphonic TB303? It's not going to work, is it?
1: Ooh, no, I can't actually. <laughs> but but what? But the other thing that came across that came out of this was you know because I've been doing this this um, PolyKB review one of the reasons it's so unusual is because it's so bloody rare and you probably never heard the sound of it anyway. So if you've got something, if you get the rare enough synth and emulate it, then it's going to be fresh because nobody really has heard it. Whereas, you know, you've got your Moog emulations and what have you that, that are more commonplace. I mean, albeit, you know, you can do the best one or whatever, but the, the, the sound is much more familiar to the user's ears just because it's a Moog sound or whatever, Yeah and I, and i think that's going to be quite i mean i suppose in some respects that's going to actually end up um driving the price of the real rarities right up because i mean you know if you paid i don't know 3 grand for a poly uh, poly cobalt and then you and it, but there was only one or two left i mean there's only, uh, there's there's one video on youtube of a poly wow that's it and it's not a particularly great demo it sounds good and there are some other really good demos of the um the just the rsf cobalt COBOL, and they sound brilliant, but there's only one, so there can't be very many of these things. So I mean, you know, and, and I guess to some extent, Dave, that's sort of what you've kind of done. You've taken some of the lesser known sort of hip synths that are still got great character and kind of, you know, made them your own.
2: Yeah, I mean that was our vibe, you know, when we started. I mean when we started you, you could, couldn't give a Mellotron away, frankly. Oh. And then all of a sudden, I thought it was really fascinating from that aspect that you get a lot of kids going into stores and saying, oh, I want the instrument that makes that sound. And they didn't really know, they didn't know what the original instrument was, but they'd heard it, you know, maybe on Oasis stuff or maybe even going back to kind of Beatles stuff or Moody Blues stuff. So it was kind of, from our aspect, it's really fascinating giving a younger generation with none of that baggage, as it were, those the, the sounds of an old instrument and just seeing how they used it it took a while we had a lot of people you know sending us sort of cds of rehashed prog tracks <laughs> and we were kind of like mm, yeah okay it might be great playing but you know it doesn't really do anything for us and then there was two people actually pooter and this band f- who were from uh they were actually from cornwall harmonic 33 they sent us uh, both sent us cds and we just were like, wow, they've used it in a completely unique and original way. The harmonic thirty three guys were using it with sort of trip hop stuff. And it was like it was awesome, really, because you've got that kind of old vibey nostalgic sound, but within a new context. And that's what really kind of turns us on.
1: Yeah. 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 I can see that anyway I think it's time to introduce uh, a word from our sponsors I'm just going to put this fancy overlay I've got I'd like to say thank you very much to Yamaha UK um, the continued sponsor of the show Um, we'd like to point your attention at a couple of things Uh, first of all uh, yamahadownload.com you can sign up for the newsletter there's loads of information on the latest product news software releases because don't forget Yamaha also responsible for Cubase so anything to do with Cubase and hardware and drivers and all that stuff you can find at yamahadownload.com there's also uh, a monthly newsletter which will give you um, you know, the insight into what's coming up on the, on the site and all the... They do loads of artist interviews, loads of clinics, loads of tours. I mean, this is... If you're into Yamaha stuff, you should probably check this out. And if you're not into Yamaha stuff, you're into some of the artists that uh, work with Yamaha. And believe me, they are, they are legion from drummers and bass players to guitarists and keyboard players, the whole works. Um, check them out. Uh, yamahadownload.com uh, and their newsletter. Uh, you can get to the newsletter if you go to sonicstate.com forward slash Yamaha. And uh, then, if you click there, it will kind of track through the system and all be great. But the other thing I wanted to tell you about was, uh, as you, if you're watching the video, you'll be able to see the uh, lovely slideshow of the uh, the Yamaha CP piano range because the CP piano range um, use something called spectral component modeling, which gives them a particularly unique uh, sound. And not only do they have some of the great classic Yamaha piano sounds, but there's a lot of electromechanical stuff in there. And it's kind of, I guess it's the new generation of stage pianos. And it features, uh, some, well, the CP50 certainly features the virtual circuit modelling effects, but lots of effects taken from the Motif XS line of synthesizer. Uh, CP50's also got a graded hammer action and lightweight, as a lightweight portable design. But the, the best thing really to do, if you're, a pianeta, if you're a player, you really should get into a dealer, a Yamaha dealer near you and just try them out. They've got, I mean, you know, they're, they're not the cheap cheapest pianos in uh, in the world but that's because they're quality but there is a range you know you can go right up right up high to the top of the range and then come down to the sort of mid price but if you're a player please do check them out go into a uh, yamaha dealer near you and if you buy one tell them we sent you somehow let yamaha know and then uh, then they'll they'll just realize how effective this stuff is for them anyway but so we want to say thank you very much to uh, yamaha for their continued sponsorship of the show Uh, very much appreciate it Andy, should we do, Should we jump straight to the three ways to improve your mix first? Because I, I suspect you might have something that you'd be able to add to that. I'm going to. What I'm going to do is I'm just going to play a little intro to this because this guy's very compelling.
4: Hey, everybody, Joe Gilder here from HomeStudioCorner.com, and I want to talk to you today about three ways to become a better engineer. Now, there are certainly more than three ways to become a good engineer, and this is by no means an all-inclusive list. But it's three things that I myself have done over the last six months to a year to, um, to get better as an engineer, particularly when it comes to mixing. But um, I've really, if, if I were to compare mixes I'm doing now to mixes I was doing a year ago, uh, I can hear a lot of improvements. And so I think that could be something that could be beneficial for you too. So let's jump in and take a look. So the very first thing that I think might be the most important is use what you have now. So who am I talking to when I say this? Well, this is for those of you who want to get another microphone. You don't need another mic. You don't need another guitar pedal, which I've been tempted to do now, lately.
1: This was a great piece. This is uh, by... um... Joe Gilder, homestudiocorner.com. I found this on musformation.com, um, which is a great music uh, information blog. Um, well worth subscribing to them on Twitter if you if you, if you you do that sort of thing because their headlines come in sort of thick and fast and there's usually some really great tips and tricks there. Um, it was a very interesting... But the three points... I won't play the whole thing because it's like six or seven minutes, but the three points are use what you have now, finish what you start, and get feedback from others. Now, I... Uh, uh, I know, uh, Andy, you're more of a live engineer. Do, do, do these kind of things apply, or would you sort of modify them slightly from that point of view?
3: From a live point of view, those three things, I don't know if they apply in the context that he's using them, all of them, or, or in fullness. I think the first one does, um, use what you've got. Yeah, well, you have to. Mm-hmm. Don't <laughs> think. Well, you do have to. Um, obviously, he doesn't, because he's taking other people's money for this advice, so he's probably bought all of the kit he needs. And- LAUGHTER has been spent a lot of time thinking about three ways it can become better. Um, so, I, yeah, I, I don't know. What are the other two again? I mean, I've heard them three times now, and I can't remember. Finish really. What You Start uh, um, was a good one. Finish but- What You Start, well, that's a good one, isn't it? Um, a good lesson of life, really. Yeah, that's that. Just I'm that's, sure that's I,
1: outside I, of it completely, isn't it? That that You I, could I don't apply don't that exactly. to
3: anything. Yeah, I don't really think that one counts, because you can't do that anyway, not unless you're making... stuff to order on a conveyor belt, which I know some people do, and in in that case those rules would apply, but I think that's probably just common sense. What was the third one? Uh, Get feedback from other people to listen to you. Yeah. Well, I believe the only other previous time that I was on this podcast, um, I quoted Iggy Pop, which was, um, he said, listen to everything everybody else says, but nothing that they say to you. Um, I think if you play random people, he does go on to mention his wife here. That One of his key critiques is his wife. Yeah. Um, I started to struggle with him at that point uh, because we don't know anything about his wife uh, (laughs) and and what she does or doesn't understand about having more bass in a track, and I immediately got visions of Janine in Spinal Tap saying Dobbly, and so I wouldn't advise that particularly. (laughs) Um, In terms of, yeah, reference it out to people, definitely, but... I. Reference it yourself, you know. I mean, the, the, the whole thing about this is to be – you need to teach yourself and you need to pick the, the records that you like. I guess the way that I started to, to form my style, if I have one, is that um, as a player as well, is that I listened to things that I liked and learned how to do those um, and then incorporated that in the things that I did. So right. I wouldn't – I certainly wouldn't say, no, I'll play it to loads of people. Gauge their uh, reaction, yeah. Yeah, no, not really. Um, listen to it in lots of different places, by all means. One piece of advice I, would have, I, I was hoping he was going to come up with, I, when I did do studio work, I once did an experiment because I had a spare mix room, and I mixed a track. I, I realised that I was going to mix it for probably about nine hours, so I mixed it in nine one-hour sessions uh, against the clock, as it were. And I, was only allowed to, I only allowed myself to listen to it twice before I embarked on the hours mixing. Uh, and that's probably the best mix I've ever done.
1: Oh, really? So so was. do you think that's because it was down to instinct or was it down to...
3: It was just- down to initial reaction. And I think the other thing, which is perfectly clear from live shows, from your own experience and watching other people, is uh, in a very short amount of time, your brain adjusts to what it's not hearing. So if, if you're listening to something that's incredibly toppy, within a fairly short I don't know what the actual figures are, but it's something like within a minute and a half, your brain will have made up the difference in the bottom end and started to ignore some of the top end. Yeah, that's so I think if, if you're mixing a record and you, or you're mixing in a room for a long time, you've really got to have regular breaks. And then uh, come back uh, in and
1: go, oh, my God, then, how did and I then come back
3: in, yeah, that's when you hear it. Or when somebody else walks through the room and suddenly goes, are you aware of how loud that high is, Because yeah. quite often you're not, you know.
1: That's a really interesting point, actually. I, I hadn't thought that, and that's that would be a great experiment, actually. Just try and mix in short bursts. and then In short it.
3: bursts. The other thing I would advise people to do, uh, again, from my experience, uh, I mean, live mixing is very good for sharpening your skills very quickly. Yeah. Because you have to, and you have the pressure of being embarrassed in front of however many people there are in the audience. But if you approach a, a few... Um, you know line if it if it's demos or tracks you've got of a band in your studio, line two or three of those up one after the other and try and mix them like it's a show you know give yourself a ten minute line check get a rough kick sound get get your rough sounds up and then and and mix it like that. have a couple of sessions of mixing like that where you don't have time i think you'll find, i think i think people will find that they'll get um a lot less caught up in compression ratios and stuff and that because you have to use your ears uh you don't have time to be thinking about that sort of stuff.
1: That is interesting. I mean, the thing that I found, when I when I had been live mixing for a long time and I started to work in the studio, um, I found none of what I had learned live really was in any way applicable, pretty much, apart from, you know, the operational side of things. Yeah. And it didn't really, because the adjustments you make are much more amplified, strangely, in a record because you're generally Indeed, mixing to a yeah. compressor or whatever, whereas you can kind of quickly whip the bass drum out and then match it back up again, you know, live. It won't make too much, you know, you obviously you don't want to do that, but, you know, you can pull it down and then, and then <laughs> I am gradually- just going to raise,
3: raise my hand with that point. That's exactly what you shouldn't be doing anyway. No, no, want. no, but,
1: I mean, you can quickly adjust something and then sort of slide it into place so that it feels right, you know, that sort of stuff. Yes, you, don't you know. certainly can
3: these yeah. days, yeah.
1: So I suppose, yeah. I mean, you wouldn't want to drop anything major like that out, but sometimes you just have to reach for things and turn them down when they're making a horrible noise, and then find out what it is, and then reseat them back in the mix. You know that sort of stuff, which you obviously can't do. Oh, it?
3: sure, absolutely. I was, I was more talking about mixing something where you've you're happy with all your right, your track, okay, got it. Yeah, that's all leveled out and stuff, and you're going right. I'm going to mix the track. What you can what, what in my experience what you can achieve in the first hour and a half is is a good 75% of the job is done there and then the rest is overthinking things often and although mixing a live show is the opposite end of that spectrum it's a useful thing to do to get things into perspective a bit
1: yeah i mean I th- we used to I, I never forget when i used to do and you must have had it too if you've been house engineer anywhere you get the person who mixed the record to come in to mix the first couple of shows and their approach to mixing live is just painful to watch because they're just yeah, pissing course. around, aren't they? And just kind of going, oh, have you got the uh, particular preset on the Doodar?" and I need to bring this exact... You know, just think, no, you don't. Just <laughs> just let the, band, yeah, let the band play, for God's sake. It's not about well, there you. Is, yeah. <laughs> I
3: mean, you, obviously, this is my feel, so I could talk about it forever. But that very situation came up on Paloma 5th and they did actually get the studio guy in for two or three um, shows, and, but he didn't mix it but what they did do was f- send all the files in so all the reverbs were the same muse do it most of what muse do live all the reverbs everything that's that's not being performed is from the files used on the record oh uh, what which they can do with the digit design desks the the uh, okay. the popularity of the digit design desk is based largely around the fact that you can hook it up to um the session <laughs> loads of, yeah you can hook it up to loads of software stuff so that all your outboard software, so whatever you use on the album, you just save, and then you take that out on the road with a Design desk. So that, that happens quite a lot now. And they, they'll often get the studio or the mix engineer in to kind of supervise the live engineer into how to use those things.
1: Right. Yeah, yeah. Well, that, that certainly happened in the Golf Rap production rehearsals when we had the full... You know, venue kind of thing going on, and they'd sync up the the mix of the album against you know uh, something else against stems against whatever. And I, uh, you know, when I heard what you can achieve with that sort of system, it was terrifying because I just thought, oh, that sounds like the record but bigger and wider. Yeah, and it was, and I said, what what have you done to the CD? And no, 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 that's the band. I was like, what? No, and and I—that was a track that I'd worked extensively on, you know, new inside out. It was really sort of quite terrifying, but uh, yeah, amazing stuff um dave finish what you start did you see the thing about the half drive inventory that was a really scary thought <laughs> <laughs> uh no what was that refreshment we basically I said practice. um finish what you start. He said one exercise is to go ha- take a hard drive inventory go through your hard drive and see all the things that you've not finished but started and ask yourself why yeah,
3: yeah. Well, well, why you haven't finished them, or why you're doing it?
1: <laughs> well, I suppose that the, 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 the 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 second of those questions might be answered after you've figured out why you're not doing it.
3: No, I mean why you're doing the industry.
1: <laughs> yes. Well, either one, I suppose.
3: Yeah, oh, that would take me a year. Yeah, exactly.
1: But I mean, the, and I think he's being very—he's und- uh, being a bit over draconian because I mean, I must say, you know, when I was doing a lot of remixes, you know, I'd put all my creative energy into the project, and you know, I'd occasionally be messing around with a few ideas, just maybe if I'd got a synth, in, I'd be playing with it, and I'd come up, and that stuff was never supposed to be finished. It was only to sort of exercise the muscles and kind of go, oh, I could try that in in real life at some point, you know. So those sort of things tend to hang around. I don't know that that's necessarily immediately true i don't know mark are you this i know you've probably got a bunch of stuff lying around but
0: i'm you... just thinking about my hard drives i don't even know where some of my hard drives are i think i i think i um i think i hid one in the loft actually what just to keep but... it
1: out of your way so that you wouldn't bother you
0: <laughs> well every so often i think oh god this isn't backed up if someone breaks into my house and they steal that then that's i'm going to lose all that work and then i hide them in places and then i probably moved house and left a whole load in the last <laughs> house actually <laughs> But I, I think I, I do remember sort of retrieving one from the loft in the last house and it was all covered in like slate dust and everything and it didn't look very well. And But I've got, I don't know, literally hundreds of things that I've sort of started and then had loads of ideas for. Because, you know, I went through that whole space of writing a song in sort of under an hour and trying to write and mix the whole thing yeah, yeah. while oh, he was asleep. Yeah. Well, I've got a couple of years of that. And, you know, obviously I didn't, always managed to do that so i've got loads of sort of half started things and um what's the idea of this inventory you just i'm not really sure i I
1: mean as far as i can tell it can only make you feel bad about yourself and inadequate
0: Mm. well i was worried about the other thing as well ask other people what they think i'm so insecure when it comes to mixing that i'd probably just (laughs) uh, as soon as somebody said oh i don't like the sound of that i'd want to change it all so if I asked five people what they thought, <laughs> you'd end up with a completely different mix. <laughs> so I think I need to just not ask anybody what they think and have it that I've got it right and sort of work from there, really. And ignore everyone else's opinion seems to work better for me.
1: Uh, well, and, you know what, that's and, kind of inter- you know because that whole concept of doing things by committee is, uh, is quite a heinous and terrifying prospect, I think. Particularly when it comes yeah. to creativity you homogenize everything because if you try and accommodate everybody's views then you end up with something that's not your own anymore which you know in some cases works but perhaps not in uh, you know it's always good to have somebody with the vision who's driving and stays in charge
0: i mean all it takes is one thing you know you you go and play your music to a whole load of people and you go what do you think of this if somebody's into like really hard metal and they go i mm, don't know the sounds are a bit light and you go and try and sort of tailor it towards what they've just said, it's just not going to work to do that, is it? And then you, the next person you play it to is like, say, my dad, who's into like Chopin, Beethoven and all that sort of stuff. He'd be, oh, I probably don't really understand this, but maybe this. And then mm. you kind of go away and think about that. Even if, it, even if you just think about that, it's going to influence the you know, direction it goes.
1: Yeah, that's that's Yeah, that's maybe true. I suppose this maybe comes from a point of view of someone who's attempting to get to a place where... They might then have the self confidence not to have to ask people and get feedback from others. Maybe that's the th- maybe that's his angle.
3: Awesome, maybe though. it is. He's not really in a position to be giving advice in that case, though, is he? <laughs> <laughs> I wouldn't have it doesn't feel good enough about himself to know what his own mixes are like. How come he's running a school and charging money for telling us how to do it? <laughs> uh, that's my question to him.
1: That's hard.
0: I, mean, I, I like your idea of doing things quite quickly because you're absolutely right that once you get used to a particular sound, it can sit there like a like a a wart on an old woman's face, and and you don't even know it's there anymore. And, right. And,
3: yeah, and I, I just I've also done think
0: stuff where I've turned something up so loud, and eventually someone sort of said to me, "Is that meant to be like that?" And I've kind of gone, "What?" And then, you know, you go away for half an hour for dinner or something and come back and you just go,
3: what have I done? What <laughs> is that? Yeah, or, uh, I just think I think there's... I remember the first time I ever mixed anything from my home studio and was desperate to play it to a, um, a proper studio engineer that had been working with as bass player and, and somehow thought in my head that there was a definitive way to mix Oh, well, that, yeah. It's music, and, and I said to him, what, how, what do you think? I gave him tips to listen to at home, did three different mixes, and said, which one do you think is kind of the one that's the most finished? And he came back and said, I don't know, they all sound all right, they just all sound different. So, you, you, you know, you can pore over something forever trying to... It's not like that, is it? It's, it, it's finished when you think it's finished. Well, that's interesting because... The, 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 you do things really quickly... I I think most people would be surprised at just how far they get, how far it goes on its own.
0: I think my least favorite task is when somebody comes along and says, have you heard this? And they play you something like, I don't know, maybe Madonna's music, which is a good, great sounding track. And then they play you a rock track and say, can you make this sound like that? And you just go like, no, because that's all about space and lots of kind of, you know, sharp sounds. All very distinctly kind of all over you know in very different frequency ranges and that one's all about you know like a, a splash of ride cymbal right through the whole thing and an electric guitars that mm. are completely non-separate from each other and playing things that just start at the beginning and go all the way to the end how can you make a sound that's like one big kind of wall of noise sound like a sound that's sound like a track that's made of lots of percussive elements you can't obviously but Um, You have to pretend that you can. But do
1: you uh, you think – I mean, uh, when you think the way that uh, perhaps you or I or maybe Dave creates, you know, we're sitting in front of our computers – Sort of within our production and mix environment, we're creating the music in the same environment we're going to mix it to. Sometimes you end up in a situation where you just kind of go, Yeah, I finished the music. And then you just think, Oh, and it sounds great too, because it's just, it's somehow found its own level all the way through the working time. And then you just sit down and go, Right, I just need to get the fade sorted out, automate that vocal in the middle, and you're done. So, yeah. you know, in some respects, you're not spending time. Most on the mix, but the mix sort of has found itself because of the creative process of writing the track or arranging it or whatever.
3: Uh, yeah, I'd agree with that heavily. Uh. I think a, a fine example of that is Hall of Notes. I think it's I Can't Go For That, uh, which has a cheap Casio sounding rhythm part in it and and some glorious backing vocals and a nice hook line and very little else. Um, I think it's got guitar in it um the story there is apparently that it was they were demoing it and phil ramon popped in to see what they were doing and said that's a nice mix and they said no that's a demo and he said well you should leave it and apparently that tracks only got about six tracks on it six seven tracks wow. and that's a, a classic example of of something doing itself and you sitting there going right well we should go and do this properly now and somebody else coming in going why that's fine
1: yeah i always used to happen the other way around with me <laughs> I was used to say. Well,
3: yeah, I was the other way I mean, Everybody, you should just go and play. mix
1: it in a proper studio. It's
3: like, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> somebody who knows what they're doing. Yeah.
1: All right. Thanks. Well, thanks for the very <laughs> call. Cool. That's brilliant. Yeah. And uh, you're I mean, my. Think, yeah. In fact, that was my I, agent for my remix work at one point. It's like, <laughs> thanks. It was just before we stopped working. Yeah. The point
0: in time when I realised that I could do mixes was I used to play my mixes off my four track, and like my rough demos and the things we'd done in the studio to mix engineers and say, can you tell which one's which? Because I really had this whole thing about, like, it's possible to make a home studio sound as good as a recording studio. That was my big thing throughout the sort of 80s and 90s. Like, you know, there will become a point where this stuff sounds as good as that stuff. And they always used to know. And they'd always say, well, I think that's the 24-track one and that's the, the one you've mixed at home. And they'd kind of always get it. And eventually I sort of said, well, what is it that you can tell them? and He said it's just the space and the width of stuff that you, yeah. you know, can create more, basically more pans in a studio and you can cross-route stuff through delays and sort of create space. But now you can do that on a computer. I, I reckon that there's got to be... People who mix at home that make stuff sound at least as good as stuff that's mixed in a studio. Sometimes better. Actually, you get a really poor engineer in a studio. Well, yeah. And a really good engineer at home. What's going to happen?
1: It's funny actually because um, I was recently doing something. I had to pull up a load of drum tracks and I just threw. I think it was some stems that I was trying I was I can't remember what it was now and it was um it was I did it in logic and all I did is I took the uh, presets for, you know, a kick preset, a snare preset. So it was like, you know, four or five tracks or ten tracks of a drum and I used those as my start and I put them across and then stuck a compressor across it. And it was like, Well, wow, that sounds really good. I, just, well, well, it can. I didn't I didn't even do anything really, apart from just push a few faders up. You know, it was
0: I mean quite, I quite often use those presets when I'm writing Songs, and then you find that you don't really need to go and change some of them. Some of it does sound quite good,
1: only it does sound like everybody else's I suppose
0: well, I guess so yeah there's ways that.
1: Or can do. Um, well, that's an, yeah. Thanks very much. That's an interesting. That's definitely a very interesting um, topic, and generated a lot of interesting discussion. In fact, there was another one that was kind of mix-based. In so, sort of which order do you mix? And I guess this would apply to you as well. I and mean, this was on the Roland.co.uk uh, site, and it's part of their um, oh, I forget what it's called now. They've got a sort of online magazine, and uh, it says, "Does the order in which you mix instruments make a difference?" And I always just assumed that you started kicks and Hat, you know, in the same way that you do with live. You know, you start generally i mean at least uh, sure. this is what i assumed you start with the drum kit and you start with the kick drum and you do all of that stuff and then you fit everything else around that but may, I, I don't know is that is that not true is is there are there other ways to do it
3: yeah there, there's always other ways to do it i think that's what people need to you know there's a there's one way to become a better engineer remember that there's always different ways to do things um n- numerous examples uh do you, the I mean, live how- thing, I, I do, I'm just trying to think, um, I had a thought about it earlier on because I did read this and think think that I had some comments to make. Um, one of the reasons they do it that way, you always do it that way around live, is there's a certain protocol and you generally don't have much time or yeah. what time you do have you need to use. So it's easier to go with the protocol that you know that everybody else is used to. Yeah. Uh, and nine times out of ten, they will write your desktop left to right that way around. Occasionally, somebody who's... Toured with one band and one band only, uh, will put the drums at the right hand side. Um, but you would still check them in that order for some bizarre reason. Oh,
1: no, I can't do that. Still check the drums
3: first. Um, no, I don't think it does. I, th- I think it's th- what they're saying in this article is, is relevant that it depends on what you want to do with, with the tools that you've got to mix. Um, with Lissy at the moment, I, it's really about the reverb on her voice and her voice right so- one of the guitars so i the first thing that i do in a limited time situation is go straight to the reverb and make sure i can make that sound the way i want it to and then get it loud enough and then get somebody to go on hair mic then i'll go backwards and do the drums but again that largely that's because the band are used to doing it that way and we have a system now. but you certainly yeah what whatever is most important um not most important, but whatever whatever's carrying the vibe of the track, you should certainly pay. I would pay more attention to and often start with.
1: Hmm. Dave, do you do you usually start with beats? I mean, obviously, if it's got beats, then you. If it hasn't got any drums, then you wouldn't. But I, I mean, I'm guessing that, you know, maybe some of your compositions revolve around maybe a, a particular synth sound or keyboard sound. I mean, I'm guessing here. That's not. That's a bit of a generalisation.
2: No, I think that's a fair. Fair point. I mean, what I find, particularly with writing stuff with plugins and computer-based stuff. It's that actually the mix evolves as you write the track to a certain extent. The hardest thing I find is when I revisit it a couple of weeks later and go, okay, now I've got to put some vocals on it, and it's making those vocals sit. So, I mean, really, from my perspective, it can start anywhere. It can start with a synth sound or, you know, if the groove is really important. I think um, what Andy said is really pertinent. Whatever carries the vibe of the track.
1: Hmm. That's a good point you make about trying to fit the vocals in though because uh you can well, easily people
3: traditionally do that last and often you've filled I mean from my point of view live a lot of what I do and not everybody that does what I do does it this way but I I'm having to carve up I carve up the audio from top to bottom the spectrum so that things have their own place to sit um it's a lot easier as as it is with Lissy where there's only 3 of them and the songs have actually been written with huge holes in the lyrics for things like the reverb to hang on and stuff so it's actually it's actually pieced together like that. But I think Dave's point about building stuff up as you go, I don't do much software stuff but if you're working on a nice effect on a bass line that's coming off a synth then you've worked on it and you want it and you want to hear it so to some degree you should leave it like that and and fill in the remaining holes as opposed to going right now there has to be a guitar and you get all that stuff on and then there's nowhere left for your vocals to go.
1: Mm.
3: And certainly mixing, it's worth going, Okay, let's put the bass and drums up, maybe, and then stick the vocal on, and then start bringing stuff in.
1: Well, it's intro um, THC in the chat room says, start recording with drums, start mixing with vocals and that's perhaps perhaps, uh, and I wonder because I I mean uh, the US vocal sound is quite is legendary you know in terms of recording you know the detail and the attention it's a shame Rich isn't here this week but he he couldn't make it you know but there is something about the way that vocals in the US uh, have traditionally been presented which is with much more attention to detail than perhaps traditionally was in the UK that's changed now I think with the with the sort of crossover of R&B coming out of the UK as people have had to pay a lot more attention to the vocal side of things there um, and and I, I wonder whether or not they perhaps mix in a different way you know like from the vocals down even with pop stuff
3: oh, very possibly i think yeah i think one of one, one good rule um that certainly covers out of the way you generally have to do things live is and, and one thing that i would say in studio is when i'm when you're mixing live certainly for me there's two two distinct parts to it one is getting all the sounds the next is bringing the faders up into a mix um, and I always used to do that in the studio so what I'm saying here I guess is um, don't work through a mix starting with the drums and get them to sound good and then get a rough bass up you know take the drums out get the bass sounding good take oh, the bass So, so out, do it in isolation. so that when you well yes yeah, so that to, you've got those sounds and you know what you want them to sound like and then start trying to put them together and then it'll tell you know. Then then you'll see where there's no room for things to sit anymore. If mm. you've got the correct sounds that you want, <clears throat> it's difficult trying to make something like a bass fit in with a drum sound that you've spent two hours on. If you spent ten minutes on the bass and it's not sounding very good, <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> well, it's, it's interesting. I mean, working on them as, on mass, I think you want to work on them individually sometimes and then see how they fit together.
1: Well, I, is it true to say that perhaps the um, the spec the frequency spectrums in uh, a live mix are um more uh, more defined so you know you do a lot of high pass filtering and roll off (laughs) of of things that yeah i would say so just purely because you can hear the
3: just to fit it in yeah Yeah.
0: but also the delay times between the instruments in a live setting are all over the place aren't they so uh you have to kind of account for that as well
3: oh what if you're mixing yes you can do as in
0: like the bass player standing 30 feet away from the guitarist or more
3: indeed, yeah. You often delay the monitors to delay front of house to backline is is one of the things on bigger stages because the front of house speakers will be sometimes 20 feet in front of the. I, was thinking,
0: so, I was thinking between coherence between the players, even though if the guitarist is standing that far away from the bass player and they're kind of taking visual cues. From them and audio cues and their wedges or whatever, and hmm. and then they've got a guitar player would have the sound of his amps behind him and the wedges in front of him, and he's taking visual cues from the drummer and the bass player. The actual in the studio, the timing of things is much much tighter. As well. Oh sure, yeah, yeah. So that sorry. really, I think, I think that really alters the sound of the whole thing
3: well it does yeah and one of the reasons you have to do it live or one of the reasons i believe you have to do it live is because people are not uh, the, what you're dealing with is not that tight so you've if, you, if you've got a bass guitar hitting 80 hertz quite heavy at the same time as a kick drum if they're not in exactly the right place
1: yeah
3: it makes everything sound baggy and messy whereas in a studio that's dealt with you know you're mixing something that's you know going to push the cone forward at exactly the same Second. Well, again,
0: again, if Rich oh. was on here and we got into the subject of beat matching, which is like actually grid editing stuff and moving it all onto exact beats in yeah. Pro Tools, then you you're pretty much guaranteed in modern music to have your bass guitar and your bass drum on yeah, sure. one. In which know, case, I think you can allow
3: them. A second, you can allow them to share the same frequencies in that case because yeah. they're both moving in the same direction at the same time
1: hmm interesting i wonder if there's actually a difference between if you take the mix say in the ob truck and the mix that's front of house whether there's quite a considerable difference to how you would process those signals because you're trying to achieve different things you're trying to get a tv mix and something that's going to sound good you know and get those kind like you say the cone moving at the same time i wonder if there's a there's a, um the the, the approach different is that much different uh
3: it differs between engineers between um Mobile broadcast mix engineers. Mm. Uh, some of them leave everything very frequency open, and others uh, do more of a live approach where they're it up to avoid it sounding too raggy. I mean, a good kind of analogy is that the the, the worse the worse the bass player is, or the worse the rhythm section is, the more bottom end you would take off the bass guitar because ah. the fumbling would the fumbling would be noticed less on a huge PA. Right. Mm. Uh, or, If you did that, it would be noticed. If it was there, it would be noticed more on a huge pier than it would on a television, for instance.
1: Right, because it's all right down there. Yeah, that's an
3: interesting. Yeah, because it's all right down at the bottom. So uh, the broadcast engineers tend to not have to worry about that quite so much. That's another. They have a huge compression, stereo compression over the whole thing. So anything that's slightly out of order in the bottom end gets squashed anyway.
1: Hmm. Oh, we could go on for hours on this. I just find it it's absolutely fascinating. Um, I think one of the things I also, I mean, uh, again, you know, the size of the PA and the, 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 because, you know, you go to a festival gig like Glastonbury where you've got a massive full range PA and you're in a club, you know, the next night where you don't have the same thing. You've almost got, in some cases, an extra octave or more to play with in terms of the frequency range.
3: Yes. Yeah, you probably have, yeah.
1: Hmm. Very interesting. Well, uh, guys, I've much appreciated. Thank you very much, Annie Um, that was really, really interesting. Have your extra insight. I'm guessing um, we're probably going to be calling it a day now, um, unless anybody has anything further to add. Well, the only me- thing
0: I would add, the only thing I would add to what you can do to improve your mix, is to use something other than your ears when you're mixing. Um. So, I mean, I, and I've and i actually learned quite a lot from this in just listening to what's being said today because I just wanted to acknowledge that because I always mix kick, snare, hi-hat, bass, toms and kind of do it completely traditionally and maybe I need to think about doing it differently. But one thing that um, I would, the thing I wanted to add was use something other than your ears. So use your kinesthetic responses to what you're hearing so there's two things going to happen. The the signal coming from the speakers, if you're in a reasonable studio with reasonable-sized speakers, is going to cause vibrations to happen in your body. So listen with your body and feel what you're feeling from the music, not just with your ears but also with your body. The other thing that's going to happen is certain chord structures and certain... Uh, Melody structures are going to cause emotional responses in your body, which is another kinesthetic response, but listen like with your feelings as well. So if something feels right, regardless of what it sounds like, sometimes it's more right than something that might technically sound right, because the people that you're going to who are going to listen to the mixes are going to have the same emotional and vibrational responses to the music that you're having when you're mixing it. So it's not just about ears. It's about feeling as well, and it's about Mm. the sort of, you know, full-body response to what's coming out of the speakers. So, I mean, that would be my... Top tip for improving your mix. That's a great
1: idea. I imagine one to, that would take a bit of practice to kind of understand what your body is telling you. But yeah, good, good point. I don't know if you've ever had that experience where you've been working on a mix or working on something. I mean, I've had it a couple of times when I've been overworked and I've just sort of burst—not burst into tears, but just felt I have to stop now because otherwise I'm going to have a breakdown because I can't take. Any, <laughs> I just can't take any more of this track. I yeah. need to stop.
0: <laughs> well, I've been there. <laughs> Usually about two minutes in for me. <laughs>
1: <laughs> two minutes before you got to deliver it yeah. anyway guys thank you ever so much it's been a fascinating discussion and it looks like all the streaming's held up and everything i'm hoping the recording's going to be there so uh, i'd like to say, thank our guests i um first of all i say thank you very much to uh andy shillito for coming in i fresh from the fields i'm sure you must be tired or maybe you're refreshed by now but uh, thank you very much for, for coming in and joining us
3: my pleasure, I enjoyed it. And
1: um, people can just need to do a search for Lissy, which is L-I-S-S-I, and they can hear what you do, particularly if you're going to the Glastonbury coverage from the BBC, because that will be your mix, right?
3: The one, uh, yeah, the one in the Live Lounge thing is my mix. Excellent. Okay,
1: and uh, while we're on, uh, on the same mic, um, we'll say thank you very much to Dave Spears from G Four Software also. Thank you, good fun. Yeah, great, thank you very much. And uh, also Mark Tinley...
0: Thank you very much. I
1: really enjoyed that. Okay. Yeah, likebeing.com. Like Go and check out what he's up to. And uh, myself, Nick Bat. And we also want to say thank you very much to the uh, people in the chat room for the live. We'll give you a wave now. So this is me waving goodbye. Hopefully this will all end up on the Ustream site so you can just uh, see how it all went together. But thank you very much, everybody. And also thank you very much to our show sponsors, yamaha.co.uk. Don't forget... Go check out the the CP range of pianos in a dealer near you. Okay, that's it for tonight. Thank you very much. That was Sonic Talk number 180.
0: woo 180! Oh, you need to put one of those in. <laughs> <laughs> All right then, the tractors. Remember, family is what's important.
1: Tell your mama you love her. Kiss your babies. We're all in this together. Bye-bye, kids.